Amen. Hey, we're in the middle of a sermon series, and I can say that we are officially in the middle of the sermon series because we are in its third installment. So, we are going through looking at the theology, really, what is God asking us to be as a local church. And so we've started with this uh, study of looking at the foundation. We learned that the foundation of the local church really is this, this thing that knits us together, and it's this concept that we need a Messiah, that we are not strong enough to, nor, nor perfect enough. Hey, praise the Lord. Can, can somebody say praise the Lord about the fact that we don't have to be perfect enough because there's somebody, somebody else is. His name is Jesus. And so we're knit together by this foundation that Jesus is our Messiah. That's why we show up here to worship is because Jesus is our Messiah. And then last Sabbath, we looked at the culture of this kingdom, this church, and how it's a culture of equality, and it's a culture that, that pushes away oppression. It's a, it's a culture that cares about justice. It's a culture that, that cares about reconciliation, that, that forgives and, and loves. It's this beautiful culture. And actually, we found out that when Jesus showed up on the scene, he just enters into his ministry, he's baptized, he comes out of the water, and he goes into the wilderness for a little bit, and then he comes into these cities, and his main message was, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, or, or the kingdom of God has drawn near, some Bible translations say. And so the kingdom of God, this, this kingdom, and kingdoms are really set up with this culture, was in its advancement. And we learned that in God's kingdom, it's not a, a kingdom that he cares about building these beautiful walls or these beautiful you know, chapels or these beautiful buildings. No, in fact, he cares more about the people. That's the kingdom. And so we've been journeying together looking at what that culture is. And so today we're going to, we've, we've been kind of looking at, at, at this, this theology or this understanding of the church from this really broad view, kind of almost looking at it from like, you know, a, a helicopter going over a forest. And then the last Sabbath we zoomed in a little bit more, but today we get to look at some trees in particular, because we're going to be looking at what is the alternative ethic of the local church. And if you did a quick Google, you did a quick search, define ethic, you would find this. This is just straight off uh, Google's homepage. A set of moral principles, a theory or system of moral values. And so that might lead you to think that ethics is really just sitting across, sitting at a table and discussing how we should kind of legislate you know, living, right? We, there's the ethical dilemma of abortion. There's the ethical dilemma of, of racism. There's the ethics that go into creating any nation, right? There are these ethics. And so what is the local church ethic to be? And I think that this definition is slightly flawed, I have a hypercritical mind. I'm constantly, uh, I'm, I'm the skeptic. I am often the skeptic. So when somebody's trying to sell something to me, I'm, I'm highly skeptical because I've just, so many people have tried to sell me too many things that I just knew weren't good. And so over time, I've become very kind of uh, 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 questioning of things. And so I read this definition. I say, well, I don't know if that's actually true or if that's the best definition of ethics because we all say, if somebody works hard, we say this phrase, they have a strong work ethic. But that's not sitting across the table theorizing how we can, you know, work hard. No, no, no. We say they have a strong work ethic based off of the action. 
And so I don't think ethics is a theory or system, right? I think ethics really comes down to how your moral values are played out. I mean, it is how you actually act out your belief system. And so we've learned that our foundation is built on this belief system of we need a Messiah, and that that infiltrates the culture, allows us to be humble enough. So how are we as Christians supposed to live out? So I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. We're going to be looking at a story. Now, Jesus often had individuals who would come to him, and they would, they would present these, these questions almost to, to gotcha Jesus, right? They wanted to catch Jesus in some scandalous act, or he'd say some scandalous phrase, and by doing that, they could say, well, he, surely Jesus cannot be the Messiah. He can't be the man of promise. He can't be our hope. He can't be as good as some people are saying about him. And so uh, they, they're always asking these questions. And so we're looking at this incident where this lawyer, a religious lawyer, one who is very well-versed in the culture of Jesus' time, he comes up and he asks Jesus a question. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. It says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, him being Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So the question is, a question that maybe, I mean, this is a question that I would ask. Right? Now, Jesus has been going around. He's been raising the dead. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. He's doing these things that no other man could do. Right? I mean, could, could you imagine if somebody just bursted in through these doors and was like, guys, you got to come and check this out. This person, this person, he's just been traveling through the streets of Atlanta. And as he's traveling through the streets of Atlanta, the, the, the coronavirus is just is leaving. It's just fleeing. And people are, are having their knees repaired and, and their shoulders are put back in socket. And in fact, this individual who had passed away is now back alive. I mean, let, let's be honest, right? Some of us would be like, no, no, no. That's, that's you know, we'd, we'd want to know if they were crazy. But Jesus is, is moving through these cities. He's moving through these suburbs. And he's doing all of these things. And so finally, a lawyer, somebody who knows the legislation of Jesus' time comes up, and he asks a question that I think is a pretty fair question. He acknowledges that Jesus is a good teacher, but then he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if I'm, asking, if I, if I'm seeing someone who's doing the works of Jesus, and I ask him this question, I'm, or somebody near me asks this question, I'm on the edge of my seat. How's he going to respond? Because, I mean, it's natural, right? Who, who here would like to live forever? I mean, it's... Self-explanatory, right? Of course. Well, I mean, I guess it depends, right? What is that life like? So let's, let's refine that question. Who here would like to live forever in a place of eternal joy, eternal peace, eternal happiness? Now it's like, okay, yeah, I mean, it's self-explanatory. So this lawyer, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him in verse 26, what, Jesus comes back with a question. What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? How do you understand it? He asks. And so the, the lawyer, he's, he's very well-versed. I mean, he's, I mean, I mean, Ethan, that was fantastic, man. I mean, 13 Bible verses, man, that was, just, that was just amazing. This lawyer, this lawyer, he probably, I mean, he's probably got like 26. He's probably, he's probably got like 82. I mean, he's, he knows what Jewish law is. I mean, he's got the whole Old Testament memorized, most likely. 
And so when Jesus asks him, well, what does it say? How do you, how do you read it? How do you understand it? He's really trying to figure out what does this lawyer place emphasis on? Now, some Christians, we tend to, some followers of Jesus, we tend to place emphasis on certain things. Right? We tend to place an emphasis on this thing, or, or on this thing, or, or, or on this thing, or, or on this thing. And, and based off of where our emphasis lies, it really changes the way that we follow Jesus. And so Jesus asks, wanting to know, where does this lawyer place his emphasis? But the lawyer is smart. You don't become a lawyer with, without knowing how to respond to questions. I mean, lawyers, they debate, right? So he answered, Verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, and he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. I mean, Jesus says, yep, that's it right there. You are, you are the perfect pupil. You're a perfect student. That's the answer I was looking for. But notice how it says, do this. So do what? Do, you love the Lord your God with all your heart all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, everything that you have, love God, and then love your neighbor as yourself. If you do this, you will live, is what Jesus says. But then, apparently, that answer that Jesus gives is not good enough for this lawyer. It's not a good enough answer. Because in verse 29, it says, But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? He, he's answered the question rightly, but now he's trying to figure out, there's, there's this jostling for authority here that's happening, of what emphasis is Jesus going to, to direct this lawyer to? And so Jesus comes back, he says, we're just going to end this conflict right here. We're going to end this controversy. Here's a story. Verse 30, then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to the place called Jericho. And he fell among these thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. Side. So Jesus jumps immediately into a story. Now, that makes sense because we are naturally, uh, we understand, we learn through stories. We like a good story. I mean, even if you're in sales, if you can put a story behind it, people are more inclined to buy it. I mean, stories, we're, we are story creatures. We, we flock to cinema. We like to read books. We like to tell stories around the table. We're, we're stories. And so Jesus knows this. He's the creator of us. So he he knows this, so he goes into this story, and he tells the story of a man who's had everything ripped from him. He's, he's, he's been robbed by some thieves. Now, you might be familiar with this story. This is probably, perhaps, the, the most well-known story in all of the Bible by the whole world. It's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. But because we've become so accustomed to it, I think we forget the radicalness and the sacrifice that Jesus is actually asking of us in telling this story. So this is what's happening. This man, he goes down to Jericho. He falls on hard times. He's, everything is taken from him. And then, then a priest steps into the story. 
And you would think, oh, yeah, absolutely, right? A pastor comes in. He's going to definitely, he's going to see this man down on, on his luck. He's, he's been beaten. He's bruised. He's been stripped. He's had everything taken from him. You're going to think, oh, yeah, of course, the pastor, the, the religious man has shown up. He's going to help. He's going to have compassion. But see, that's not what happens in the story. The priest comes by and it says that he crosses over the street. The one who Jesus' audience would have immediately said, here's the, here's the hero, here's the protagonist. And yet, no, 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 he crosses over the street. But then there's a second character introduced into the story, and it's a Levite. It's a good church-attending Christian. Somebody who shows up, they, they, they carry their Bible with them, right? And, it's, and it's, a, it's a big Bible, and so they carry it with them wherever they go. And they're, they're constantly sharing Bible verses with everyone that they, that they come across. But yet they see this individual, and they cross over on the other side. And then Jesus does something that is almost... I mean, if, if Jesus was preaching this story in a church, I believe the entire church would get up and leave. Because then he inserts a Samaritan. Now, we need to understand how much the Jews hated the Samaritans to understand why, if Jesus preached this in a synagogue, people would leave. See, having a Samaritan painted as the hero, which is what we're about to see, is the equivalent of if we lived in the early 1800s, and we were in the United Kingdom, and we said that a Roman Catholic Irish was the hero of the story. To Protestant Christians, Englanders in the early 1800s, they would have, they would have killed you for saying that. Because they despised Roman Catholic Irish. The reason why, when you, when you run into somebody who's Irish, and they, they, chances are they're Roman Catholic as well, is because they were persecuted for being Irish and for being Catholic. And when you're oppressed for something, you develop resilience and you say, nope, I'm not going to let you take this from me. And so you, there, it's very hard to ever give anything up that you've been oppressed for, especially if it's a belief system or your skin color or whatever it is. I mean, if Jesus had told this story, the, the equivalent of the way that the Samaritans and the Jews or the Jews hated the Samaritans is if a Native American were to come along the scene, somebody deemed a savage from colonizers, and saw a colonizer stripped, beaten, bruised on the floor, but the, and the Native American is the hero. Or a runaway slave comes a, across a slave master, and the runaway slave is the hero. I mean, the, the, the Jews hated the Samaritans so much that if Jesus had placed the Samaritan as the man who had been beaten and a, a priest or a Levite had come, they wouldn't have crossed on the other side of the road. They would have crossed right next to him and they would have spit on him. That's how much the hatred was that the Jews, and the, that the Jews had for the Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans also, I mean, they're not innocent, right? There was, it was a religious and a political hatred. But Jesus is telling a story on what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so he introduces a Samaritan as the hero. Verse 33, But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, him being the man, beaten, bruised, uh, stripped of everything that he has, he had compassion. 
So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii. Two denarii being two days' wages. Two denarii gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. And that's the story. Here comes a Samaritan. Ah, oh, Jesus, why, why, why would you say that? I mean, the Samaritan comes and he sees this man and he, ta- he has compassion on him. You would, think the high, you would think the priest would have compassion or the Levite would have compassion. No, it's a Samaritan. He has compassion on him. He sees him. He takes the man. He bandages up his wounds using his resources. He doesn't ask, well, this man probably deserved it because he was probably traveling alone. That's a bad decision. He was taking this road by this time. That's a bad decision. He made a bad decision, and so he, should, he deserves to suffer for his bad decision. Some people have that concept. You can be a loving person and allow somebody to suffer for their bad decisions. But here, Jesus, he's telling, he's telling us that the Samaritan sees this man, doesn't ask how he ends up in the state, has compassion on him, binds up his wounds, does the best that he can with his emergency traveling kit, and then takes the man and places him on his own animal which would mean that chances are this Samaritan has to now walk the rest of the way. I mean, that means the man is going to have to sweat. That means he's going to have to be smacking off mosquitoes because it's going to take a little bit longer for him to get to the destination. But it's all because of compassion. But then he doesn't just bring the man to an inn and say, okay, here, I've done my good deed. No, he goes to the innkeeper, pays for the man's fare, and then says, if you need to do more to take care of him, you let me know next time I'm here, and I will cover it. I mean, he goes through tremendous lengths. In fact, in one of the best kind of, it's kind of like a biography about the life of Jesus, written from this lady named Ellen White. She says this, in the story of the Good Samaritan, Christ illustrates the nature of what? The nature of true religion. He shows that it consists not in systems, creeds, or rites, but in the performance of loving deeds. A strong work ethic of love in bringing the greatest good to others in genuine goodness. See, Jesus is telling the the lawyer that it's all about this thing called sacrificial love. It's not this love that is convenient where it's like, yeah, I can, I can give you my love because, you know, I got more love in the bank. So I can, I can give you this much because I still have this much in my savings, savings area of love. No, it's complete on sacrifice to where it costs you. You're sacrificing. I mean, last weekend we, we, we took some of the Pathfinders and we went and floated this river and it was cold. Oh, it was cold. I mean, you, you put your hands in and you put your feet in and, I mean, your feet started to go numb. I mean, it was cold. Like, who does that? I don't know why. I don't know why Rick would think this was a great idea. But, Rick, I appreciate you, man. I, I love your leadership. It was so much fun. It was, guys, it was great. But as we're going along, right, I mean, I'm, I'm wanting to just enjoy the river, right? Like, I'm just wanting to sit. We got these tubes and, you know, there's a bottom there, so your, your, your bottom's not in the freezing cold water, so you're kind of, you can, if you want to, you can be out of the water, right? There's a place of safety. And so we're going down the, the river, and, and, but all of our pathfinders keep getting stuck in these, you know, the banks. 
And so we're having to swim over to them to, to, you know, hook on with our tube. And so we're having to stick our arms in the freezing cold water and our feet in the freezing cold water. Why? Because they just can't keep in the middle of the, of the river. But it was totally worth it. It wasn't like, oh, man, i got to go do this again. You're interrupting my, my bird watching or my, you know, my, my sitting out and just enjoying nature. It, no, it wasn't even about that. But that was a sacrifice. That was sacrificial love. All of the Pathfinder leaders were swimming through the cold water while on tubes to go get the kids so that they can get back in the middle only to go back to the side again. It was fantastic. But why would one do that? Well, because it's, that's, that's what happens when Christ changes your heart. And so Christ is seeking to teach the lawyer that it's all about sacrificial love. Now, Jesus' audience would have definitely heard the priest and said, oh, the hero has arisen. Here comes the hero. Because the priest had this responsibility. In Hebrews chapter 5, it says, from every high priest taken from among men is appointed four men. They're appointed literally to serve and things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. But then it goes on and says, he can have, oh, compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray. So those who have fallen on hard time, the priest is supposed to have compassion for. But in our story, the priest crosses to the other side. It's the Samaritan that has compassion. Jesus is... is He's doing this thing that is so radically different than what we see played out every single day. Because our concept of, of love tends to be, how does it benefit us? That's our concept of, of love. And in that fabric of our society, we have these things that show if you do a loving action, you'll get some level of benefit. I mean, if you contribute to the church, if you pay tithe or you give offering, you get a tax benefit for it. You do. There's, there are these things in society that, that try to reward you for doing good. And now I understand that. You, you want to be rewarded for doing good. But Jesus actually requires us to do good just simply because it's good. It doesn't matter if anyone says, hey, I'm so, thank you so much for doing that. I mean, it feels great, don't get me wrong. When you're, when you're, uh, when you're, when you're celebrated for doing something good, it feels great. But Jesus requires us to be different in fact, he requires us to live questionable lives. Now you might be wondering, well, questionable lives, what does that mean? I think of two ladies, two ladies. They're some of the greatest evangelists I've ever met. They are, uh, they're well into their late stages of life, and they both attend the Marietta Seventh-day Adventist Church. And every Friday night, when the youth would come together to have a Friday night hangout, they would be there. They're, they're, they're in their later stages of life, but they would be there. In fact, when I got to go to Marietta to baptize one of, the, one of my former youths, they, they were there. They were there at the potluck afterwards because there's no way they're missing out on it. They live questionable lives. And by questionable, I mean they have something different about them. One is named Janine and the other one is named Kathy. And Janine will send me memes every day, text message, four or five of them, of these uh, absolutely hilarious and some cringy memes. Now, a meme is like a, you know, it's a funny joke, it's a graphic, it's... So, but her and Kathy, you show up to their church, they'll come up and they'll say, I got a problem with you. And you'll, I mean, if you're a first-time visitor, you're like, whoa, what, what? You got a problem with me? Like, I mean, what, what did I do? What, did I break a rule? And, and, and then they'll say something like, yeah, why aren't you sitting over next to us? 
They, they live these questionable lives where people are like, whoa, whoa okay, now hold on a minute. Why, who are these people? They're friendly, they're happy, they're, they're, they're peaceful, but they'll weep with you when you're weeping and they'll rejoice with you when you're rejoicing. They live these questionable lives that cause others to say, what is it that they have? Where did they find it? And they would tell you that it's just Jesus. See, the, the disciple John, he says this, he tells us this. He says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. But the lawyer had just said, oh, yeah, yeah, I know the answer to this question. It's love God with everything and then love your neighbor as yourself. But then he asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? It would have not been a Samaritan that he would have loved. It would have not been somebody who was different that he would have loved. It would have been somebody who looks like him, dresses like him, worships like him, has the same political ideologies. There's no room for otherness in the lawyer's life, in his understanding of following God. And yet, John, the disciple of Jesus, says that if you love God, if you say you love God, but you hate your brother, you're a liar. You don't love God. And then he goes on and he says, for how can you love a God that you've never seen in person and not love the person that you see who's created in the image of that God? So if, you, if you're telling people that you love God and then you come home and you slander about your work, uh, your, your coworker, or you gossip about your coworker, or you tell a, a slightly uh, irreverent joke uh, where it, somebody is the butt of the joke or somebody is made fun of in the joke, and you're going around and you're telling people that you love God, you're, you're lying. You can't love God and hate your brother. We're called to love. Well, so what, is, what does that look like? Right? Because Jesus actually says to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, if anyone desires to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But we like to hear the follow me part. You know, okay, Jesus, yeah, I'll follow you. What does it mean, deny myself? Well, when you deny yourself, it means to truly die. You're, you're not looking for any benefit. You're not looking for any profit. Jesus actually says, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you're to become like a servant. What? Is, what? Come on, Jesus, really? Like a servant? Like, like a servant's servant or like a, just a servant? What do you mean i got to be a servant? Well, it means you're going to serve others and not look for anything in return. A servant doesn't get profit for their labor. They just work. And Jesus says in the kingdom of heaven, it's an upside-down kingdom where you serve. In fact, there's this crazy passage, this crazy Bible verse, Luke chapter 12. It says that Jesus is going to come and he's going to bring us up. We're, we're going to be in heaven and then he's going to recreate the earth. And then there's this scene where we're sitting around this table and Jesus, it says he gets down and serves. He's just, I mean, the, every, sin is no longer in the world. He's, he's recreated everything. It's, we're, at, we're at this feast together, and Jesus is going to get down and serve us. Because why would he ask us to do something that he's not willing to do? He says, if you want to follow me, deny himself, because Jesus denied himself. Take up your cross. Jesus took up his cross and was crucified for it. This concept of love, this lawyer did not get. He was so fixated on just having eternal life. Church, I can tell you, I don't really care about eternal life. I want to be with Jesus. 
I don't, eternal life, yeah, that's, I mean, okay, you know, naturally, right? Selfishly, yeah, yeah, of course, I'd love eternal life. It's one of, full of peace and joy and happiness. But if it's not with Jesus, I don't, I don't really care about it. I don't. This concept of love, we tend to, to think of love selfishly. But without being vulnerable, we actually can't love. C.S. Lewis, in this book, Four Loves, he says this. He says, love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable to love is to be vulnerable. It puts you at a cost. It puts you in, in this place where, where you can be harmed. And yet, Jesus is telling this lawyer that the essence of his kingdom, the ethic, is one of sacrificial love. It's all about love. John reminds us that we can't do this of ourselves. We, one never sets out and says, okay, I'm going to go become a more loving person. You can't do that, because then you stub your toe, and you accidentally let out a phrase that many people might not want to hear, and, and then you feel bad, and then the, the trauma, the, the shame, and the guilt starts to overwhelm you. And so John reminds us that, it, really, it's only because of how much we've been loved, which takes us back to the foundation of this alternative community called the church. We have been loved infinitely at such a high cost and when we remind ourselves that truly we, I mean, let's, let's be honest. If it came down to us individually, we would rather have our freedom, we'd rather have our freedom than to let others experience joy. We would rather selfishly have our own freedom, the ability to do whatever we want to bring about our own pleasure, our own joy, our own happiness, than to submit to what a community might want. And so, if it came down to it, we would rather exist for eternity without God. That's what sin does. That's why the wages of sin is death, is because we would rather, because we're sinful, we would hurt, we'll hurt those around us. And if you've ever hurt somebody that you love, you know how painful that hurt really is. And so the wages of sin is death, is what the Bible tells us. And so now, as we think about love, our form of love is not the same sacrificial love that Jesus talks about. We have need of a Savior, and by having need of a Savior, that love pours into our hearts and radically shapes us. I mean, it's this grace that transforms you. There's one of my favorite quotes is, "...only by love is love awakened." Only by love is love awakened. It's not through shame. It's not through guilt. It's not through putting a, you know, putting $1,000 at the reward. No, 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 no. The only way that we can become a more loving individual is by sitting and dwelling on how much we have been loved by the God of infinite love. That's it. It's, it's 100% Him doing all of the work. His love comes into our hearts and it shapes us and transforms us to the point where we become... These, these individuals that, that look like Christ. In fact, we're little Christs. This is Christian love. Christian love is this. You first, me second. Always. Not sometimes. Always. You first, 
Me second. Always. That's the ethic of the local church. You first. Me second. So you first, me second in the community means listening to the needs of the community, not going to the community and saying, hey, here's how we would like to be present in the community. No, it's going to the community and saying, hey, what are some needs and how can we meet them? And so we're doing that. We're exploring that. And so that's why we're going to have a mentoring program is because we went and asked the community, what are your needs? And we, we heard back from the school system that they have need for mentors to come in and mentor youth. That's their need. Yeah, we could come up with thousands of other ideas of, hey, here's how we'll serve our community, but that's what they've told us. And so we're listening because it's them first, us second, always. We're, you know, we're, we're in a very divided time where there are these, you know, campaigns to vote for this candidate or vote for this candidate. And because of that, we can't understand one another. We're not even willing to listen to one another. But as Christians, it should be you first, me second. Let me, help me understand. Not respond in the comment section, but get on your phone and call them. We're not to be arguing in front of the whole world. We're to live differently. We're to be Christians of sacrificial love. You first, me second. Which requires humility, which is very hard. It's hard. Because what happens if, if I get stepped on? What happens if I get hurt? What happens if, if, if it pains me? What happens if it costs me something? But love is vulnerable. It always has a cost. In fact, it cost God himself because he loved us. And so he would not let us go. In fact, he came and stood in our place. And so when I think of this type of love, this Christian love, you first, me second, I think of this individual, Jonathan Daniels. See, Jonathan Daniels is a very obscure man. He passed away, if you did the math, he passed away at the age of 26. He, in 1964, or no, sorry, 1963, he enters the, an Episcopal seminary up in the Northeast. And in 1965, Martin Luther King Jr. puts out this call for clergy to come down to the South to help in the Civil Rights Movement. And so Jonathan Daniels, being 26 years old, gets on a bus, goes down to Alabama for what he expects to be a simple weekend. And while he gets there, he sees the need, and, he's, and he changes his course, because it's others first, himself second. And so now, he's committed himself to helping uh, the black community get registered to vote. And so he's put in prison for it. He's put in prison with this lady next to him, Ruby Sales. She was 17 at the time and a Catholic priest, as well as three others. And they're in this, they're in this jail cell. There's no air conditioning. They're trying, they're, they've turned it into a sweatshop. I mean, it's, it's horrendous conditions. And they get out, and they're about to go back to headquarters, but they're, they're going to get a bite of food. And there's this, there's this place where uh, there's, there's truly no segregation. They, they allow the black community and the white community to come in and, and purchase. But there's a deputy, a lawman, standing outside the door with a shotgun and a pistol. This is a police officer who's taken the oath to protect and serve. And yet he points the shotgun at Ruby Sales. And Jonathan Daniels pushes her out of the way and takes the full shotgun blast. 26 years old. Because he was willing to say, you first, me second. Ruby Sales goes on. She can't speak for eight months because of the trauma. 
but then she'll go around and she actually she travels around and she talks about the impact she started several nonprofits she's fought for equality and she talks about the impact of Jonathan Daniels how it changed everything for her how it gave her the courage to stand up to any bully regardless of their size regardless of their weapons regardless of their insults because of his act of love Church, we've had a greater act of love than even Jonathan Daniels. And it's in the person of Jesus. And through that act of love, we can live in our community where we can say, hey, it's you first, me second. In fact, I'll push you out of the way and I'll take, I'll take the bullet. I'll take the insult. I'll take the pain. That's the ethic of the local church. And so Jesus, in Luke chapter 10, he asks this lawyer a question after sharing the story of the good samaritan he asks the lawyer this question so which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves so instead of the lawyer's first question who is my neighbor jesus flips it and says who is the neighbor to the man in need and the lawyer knowing that he has been he's he's been led in verse 37 responds and says he who showed mercy on him and Jesus responds and say go and do likewise the story of the Good Samaritan is a story of sacrificial love it's it's Christian love at its truest essence it does not matter who the person is that needs loving people need loving and you're called as a Christian as a follower of Jesus to go and love sacrificially and so we have all sorts of opportunities. If you want to be a mentor, send, a, send me an email. My contact is on our website. Send me an email if you want to mentor a, a youth that's going through a hard time. We have some who have already reached out to me. We have men's ministry that's having a gospel community meet on Monday so that we can learn as, as men from a, from, a, from a man perspective how we can be the point men in our homes and in our lives. It doesn't matter, even in our friend groups, just learning to be a point man. A point man is the one who goes out, he's the scout. He might, he might step over the tripwire, but he's doing it to alert the men behind him that there's danger. He's put himself in a dangerous position for somebody else. You first, me second. We have women's ministry. We have gospel communities. We have a prayer line that happens every single night. We, as a church, we are coming together in a time that really needs churches to rise up and actually love their communities because we are living in a fragmented world with broken communities. We're answering the call because we know that Jesus is taking us there. And so if you want to get involved, you reach out to us. We will plug you in because we're going to be the hands and feet. We're not focused on just showing up to inhabit a building. That's fantastic, and that's that God calls us to come in together and worship. But we're also going out to love. If we're going to be a church that exists for one thing, it's going to be that. To love people the way Jesus did. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the, for the challenge. Because, Lord, through, the, through this story of a good Samaritan, you flipped everything upside down and showed us that it's not really about who is our neighbor being in this geographical location who lives next to us, but it's who is going to be the neighbor to those in need. And Lord, I pray that, that you would allow our church, this Alpharetta Seventh-day Adventist Church, to be the one who goes and is the neighbor to those in need. 
Lord, empower us. We know that it's not because we, we white-knuckle, grit our teeth to love others more. We know that it's vulnerable. We know that it's messy. But through your grace, through your love in our hearts, we can truly put others first and ourselves second. And so, Father, we thank you for the love that you have for us. Father, we thank you for Sabbath. We thank you for this church community. We thank you for every volunteer, every leader. We thank you for our kids. And we just ask that you would continue to guide us. In the name of Jesus, and everyone said, amen.